and clean. Welcome to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. I am Chris. And I'm Kate. And we are a pair of tech writers, tech journalists, tech people who like to explain tech to people, be those other tech people or not. We are over in today, sunny Berlin. It is now nearly September and we're hoping summer has finally begun. Yes. <laughs> but we are not here to talk about the weather. We are here to talk about technology, society and the impact of both on each other. So, Kate, I think you have today's first article. Yeah, this one's from the new, um, sorry, The Atlantic, and the um, title is When Silicon Valley Took Over Journalism. You might have come across it a few weeks ago. Basically, it's about the publication New Republic, and what happened there is Chris Hughes came on board, an uh, ex-Facebook guru. and Co-founder, co-founder. Co-founder, sorry, I do stand corrected, (laughs) co-founder. Well, I like the fact it says at Harvard he had roomed with Mark Zuckerberg, which... I don't know if that implies that mm. anyone who ever roomed with him was a, fo- a founder of Facebook, but anyway. Yeah, is that a, cl- is that a claim to fame? I don't know. But, yeah, look, basically it, it talks about, a, you know, a, pub- a, a print publication that's got to keep up with the times and go, um, go onto the internet. Um, it, if you read it, it kind of suggests that the um, Hughes became rather seduced by the metrics of BuzzFeed where, you know, they base it on the clickbaits and the um, seductive headings of you wouldn't believe what happened next and that kind of stuff. Um, and the idea of, you know, how do we fix this problem of traffic, getting traffic? And um, he also became quite invested in Upworthy, a site you might know that basically picks videos and graphs from the web and um, tries to make them go viral. So he was basing kind of the... the, the the journalism or, you know, the, the knowledge kind of basis on these kind of entertainment metrics. And, look, you know, any of us would know that it's very difficult some days to tell between what's infotainment and what's entertainment. Um, you know, it's it's really quite a sad article and I'd encourage people that have any interest in journalism to read it because it shows, you know, a publication that's desperately trying to stay... Um, relevant in an increasingly crowded marketplace. They're relying on metrics that um, are usually for videos and graphics. And, um, it, you know, they, they put money into it. They, they, um, this guy that wrote the article is, um, becomes an editor. He's given carte blanche to employ lots of people. So they get this kind of thing going. And then it just kind of... It's almost like it, the dream changes. It actually feels like a movie because yeah. initially, yeah. initially Chris Hughes, is, he's a self-made man. He has money to burn, really. And he actually says, oh, do what you like. I don't mm. care. I'm not going to mm. be involved. And then slowly becomes more and more involved. And actually, I think, I think the writer was the editor. Yeah, think, Franklin Fowler. I don't think he became the editor. I think he was the editor to begin with. He was. No, I, I think he, came, he was poached from somewhere, okay. Franklin Fowler. And and and, um, and then it just it just like it's that like in a movie where you seem you feel like everything's going great and you come into work the next day and suddenly someone else has your job and it's like what happened? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it, it feels a bit like a movie. It's very strange. And even why? Uh, I actually find it interesting. I have read a couple of articles this week. I think the whole a lot of people say that Trump is the culmination of this kind of era of journalism, which is ironic because he does nothing but criticise journalists. Um, but also, prior to Trump, I find it somewhat comical and ironic that people say the, the, the step just before Trump was Cecil the Lion, and that every news outlet just got so obsessed with covering this particular story that they just invented all these strange headlines mm, just to right. get people to click. And yeah, now it's similar with yeah. Trump, and yet he's not a lion who just was shot in the jungle, he's the president. <laughs> it, it's, it's actually an interesting analogy because you do see it in the media now. Like whenever, unfortunately, there's any type of um, attack in a public space that may or may not be terrorism, depending on what stage you are in the news cycle. Because we've got that 24-hour cycle, you've got people constantly trying to stay relevant with mm. updates, with, you know... Um, witnesses, every newspaper is asking people to contact them with, and email them and, have you got photos? Have you got this? Have you, were you there? Tell us your story. Mm. So you've got it from every possible angle, almost picked dry. Uh, and it may be before you even find out the actual facts of the yeah. case. And I'd like to end with the final paragraph, actually, of this article, which I think is possibly the most powerful. And I will say, so it's written by Franklin 
Foer. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. My assumption is to try and pronounce it a German way. Yeah. Um, forthcoming book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. I mean, there's a lot of people who are possibly overcritical of, of tech sometimes. But anyway, I'd just like to read you a, a couple of paraphrasing of the last paragraph. Journalism has performed so admirably in the aftermath of Trump's victory that it has grown hard to see the profession's underlying rot. Now each assignment is subjected to a cost-benefit analysis. Will the article earn enough traffic to justify the investment? Sometimes the analysis is explicit and conscious, though in most cases it's subconscious and embedded in euphemism. Either way, it's this train of thought that leads to editors to declare an idea not worth the effort or to worry about whether an article will sink. Now, I think in a very nice segue from that to the next topic, where we're talking about the cost-effectiveness of an article, what is one way that things could become more cost-effective, Kate? One way, arguably, is robotics, hmm. depending on who you read. I mean, personally, this is, um, this is an article a bit close to my heart. I do have my own, my own biases to, to come in and say that straight away because I have written quite a lot about Pepper Robot, um, one of SoftBank's particular robots. I'm often more a fan of their Neo robot, but hey, it's, um, this is an article from, um, from Wired about robots will not take your job. And I would just like to, before you go any further, I would like to interject to say there have been lots of articles on this subject. Correct. But to me, this was one of the best written and best researched and most balanced, I think, I've read on the subject, which is why we've highlighted it. Yeah. It basically looks at some really interesting analogies. For example, it looks at the impact of the ATM or the, the cash machine on um, the argument that that was going to create um, change human labour, obviously by... Um, changing the bank branches, the opening hours, the number of staff in banks. And um, the predictions at the moment, if we, if we actually read it out, I'll, I'll read this little bit out, it might be easiest than me trying to mumble through figures. Today there are more than 400,000 ATMs in the US, but as economist James Besson has shown, a number of bank tellers actually rose between 2000 and 2010. That's because even though the average number of tellers per branch fell... ATMs make it cheaper to open branches, so banks opened more of them. True, the Lab Department of Labor does predict that the number of tellers will decline by 8% over the next decade. But that's 8%, not 50%, which was what was predicted earlier in the article. Mm. And I think, I think this ties very nicely in with this period of history we've been going through of the, typical, the usual blaming of uh, job losses, especially in the US. I mean, this is generally, I guess, being an English-speaking world, we tend to have a lot of news from the US. Between 2000 and 2009, and kind of around the global financial crisis and then the fallout from that, uh, assuming it's automization, and actually a lot of the time it's not, it's outsourcing. Mm. Um, and again, <laughs> it seems to be a thread already running here. Trump is a, a natural kind of conclusion of this conversation. Um, but yeah, I would. I mean, we could we could possibly have an entire episode talk about this article. I think it's very Absolutely. good because it isn't just scaremongering; it actually goes into some very good facts and figures, um, and and has generally follows possibly why I liked it is because it generally follows my opinion on this subject, which is that in any great upheaval of technology or job style, yes, there has been a short term period of adjustment, but in the long term, new jobs come to. Uh, to replace those jobs and things like that. And I guess I would possibly say, I don't think this is mentioned in the article, but we've discussed this ourselves, is saying that possibly people of our age, um, kind of nearing middle age and onwards, will be the ones who probably suffer the most. <laughs> and our children will probably benefit from all of that. Um, and in the relative scheme of things, that's a short period of time. But that's possibly the realism of it. Or maybe now the criticism or the comment would be that the world moves so quickly that that um, longish short-term change will be shorter this time. We shall see, of course. And actually, Kate, I mean, this whole article really brings about uh, something that we like to discuss and maybe you'd like to uh, tell the listeners something they'll be able to listen to in the future around this. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is a funny one for... Um D-Zone, a publication Chris and I both write for, we're going to be doing a smackdown. Um, the um, full details of this we haven't quite entirely out ironed out yet, but basically Chris and I will be doing a little bit of a debate on will 
robots or will AI take our jobs? And we both have pretty passionate opinions on this, on different facets of it, yeah. on the facts of it, on the figures, on the reality, on looking at it from an international perspective rather than focusing on America, for example. Um, so this will be a something to look forward to. And I know we're very much looking forward to it and we will be certainly keeping you posted. Although I get the uh, feeling that we're not going to disagree as much as we could <laughs> for a smackdown. Yeah, anyway. I think we'll probably be disagreeing... Or Minutai. <laughs> on if, on, on, yeah, more on the, the particulars. Like, you know, I'm, I'm more into the cobots than um, robots, and I still believe that um, chatbots are probably going to take more jobs than an actual robot would. Okay. Now, finally, in this little segment, Kate, um, you have a third article that sort of relates, and I've actually got some other anecdotes I'd like to feed into this, but tell us what this article is. Yeah, this is one that I came across in The Guardian, and it's... Um, Bear in mind, it's not something I have any personal experience with, but the um, the title is "They Could Destroy the Album: How Spotify's Playlists Have Changed Music Forever." So they're basically looking at the um, the way that we listen to music, and I'd be really interested to hear from the listeners the last time anyone bought a CD, because I can't remember the last time I bought a CD. Mm. It would be obviously before I moved countries, so it probably around at le- maybe eight years or so, probably more. A long time. So, you know, the article goes into that a lot of us are listening to our music online. We're listening to curated playlists that come up on the um, the music platforms, whether it's Spotify or it's um, it's, it's one of the other ones. Mm. And um, it contends that it actually, you know, makes some music massively popular on the strength of a single song. Well, um, a number of the artists they they've mentioned in the in the inter- in the um, the article are actually saying they're questioning whether to release albums at all. They're talking about yeah. releasing single songs. They're talking about releasing, you know, live or, or I'd different. Like, I'd like to address that from a, a creative perspective. Yeah, sure. And then I'd like to input on the financial aspect, actually. Yep. So the, the creative aspect is um, there have been some artists who have been successful on streaming services, but yes, they do tend to focus on the single tracks. Correct. Um, and this is interesting because this suits certain types of music better than others. Uh, you focus more on the delivery and the build-up of a certain track than an album. The album has typically been this kind of longer s- chunk of material where you can play with themes and intertwining threads and things like that. And some of the classic albums have been... I don't want to necessarily use the term concept albums because that kind of implies something loftier or more pretentious, but albums that have a commonality to them, you know, mm-hmm. a band at a particular point in their career, a particular sound, etc., etc. And if all you're ever doing is releasing individual tracks, this doesn't necessarily give you that ability to, to hear that in a cohesive whole. Of course, if you're releasing one track every couple of weeks, then that's another thing. And I think this is one interesting I, uh, point to make on the creative side, is the artists who have made the streaming services work for them are working in this new model. And often the ones that criticise it are ones who are more used to the traditional model. Just as you scroll past the first paragraph, there's a link to a related article saying, music streaming hailed as industry's saviour as labels enjoy profit surge. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to as labels enjoy profit Mm. surge in that uh, sentence there because um, the way that traditionally and having signed a record contract myself in the early 2000s, which still had a clause in it for losses due to vinyl breakages yep. and actually bear in mind this was at a time when vinyl wasn't experiencing it wasn't experiencing its renaissance it is now oh. and even then i would still argue it's only a small percentage um, i would say that most artists even if they are making uh, a lot of sales through mm-hmm. streaming services are still signing contracts that don't reflect that mm. so really uh, i think this has been one of the major criticisms of streaming services is whilst they did and do provide a lot of potential for artists to make money in different ways, the labels have sewn them up already and there's no way for them to take advantage of that. I'd like to bring in one more little anecdote and then I throw it back to you, um, Kate, because mm-hmm. I read this this morning. It was a bit of a mixed bag article, but uh, I can't even remember exactly what the point of it was, but there was uh, one particular line in it that interested, interested me and is related to this. The... I can't remember what role they played, but one of the members of the band from the the 70s, slightly confusing, but that was the name of the band, the Mm -hmm. band. Uh, And he was making a reasonable amount of money each year 
not a millionaire, but a reasonable amount of money each year out of royalties. Uh, and I can say this from my own small experience. I've seen the same pattern, but the quantities are vastly different. And then as soon as streaming services happened, he stopped making this level of money anymore. And it actually got to the point where he got a serious form of cancer and couldn't afford the treatment mm. and had to crowdfund to, amongst his old fans <laughs> to get the money to pay for the treatment. And it was kind of an interesting reflection on, especially for the older artists, bearing in mind older artists are living longer. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That, um, <laughs> that the sort of impact of that. Anyway, yeah, it was an interesting perspective, but I'll throw it back to you now, Kate. Sorry, I just wanted to get a couple of those things in there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's got kind of a, a few different points in the articles. And, and it's, I mean, it's kind of funny because reading through it, I've not heard of most of the artists mentioned. Mm, well, this is... Because <laughs> there's they, a lot of kind of yeah. international acts, there's a lot of dance music, stuff like that that I don't really listen to. Um, but it, a couple of interesting points it makes is that, firstly, um, there's a level of manipulation, and I don't mean this in a nefarious way, in um, getting almost like A-B testing. Like, for example, you can put songs in different order to see w what people like most. Do they go to the first song? Do they skip songs? That kind of thing. And it also really pushes this idea that um, you can find, you know, the unknown through Spotify that will become this massive hit. And it does kind of caution this a little bit. For example, it says, um, I'll just read this short paragraph. But while Spotify may be shaping the way music reaches us, ultimately the listener still has choice. And that power is built into the service's architecture. Spotify watches which, which tracks get skipped and those with high skip rates will be unceremoniously binned for stinking up its playlists. The onus therefore remains mostly on artists and labels and whip up momentum. There's a massive difference between added, being added to a playlist and what you get out of it, Hemmings says. Mm. We have been seen. We, sorry, we have seen it with acts of ours who have been added to playlists with two hundred and fifty thousand followers, and it's led to fifty six streams. And I think this mm. it, it kind of shows that creative industries across the board are also becoming as data driven as the companies yeah. that um, the platforms create the platforms they use, and will become similar to making a podcast, like yeah. you release a, release a track a week or something like that. And actually one thing people forget, people have very short memories for history, is that in the kind of nascent days of pop music in the 60s, bands actually released albums very, very regularly. And this was often because the medium that um, they were out on were a lot shorter. Mm. Uh, 45 vinyl didn't mm. provide much time. So albums actually, sometimes bands were putting out two albums a year. So it's not necessarily that new for yeah. artists to produce more content more regularly but we will see um and i think it favors as i said i think it favors certain genres over others um anyway i don't want to get too elitist here about talking about different forms of music so yeah, maybe we'll, sure. we'll wrap up this little segment and move on to our next series of articles and we're back here on gregarious mammal this is kate joining you from sunny berlin We've got a couple of articles to discuss now, which are a bit of a foray into the past. The first one is from ZDNet. How these communist-era Apple II clones help shape Central Europe's IT sector. Now, I love this for a variety of reasons. This is one of my <laughs> links. I mean, firstly, anyone who's listened to the podcast for a little while knows I have been very, very slowly, and it's on a bit of a pause right now, working on a, a board game that actually uh, is about uh, computer history. Um, but also, as I, I like this especially for one other reason, that uh, years and years ago, my first ever kind of job in the computer sector was working with a guy from Hungary who told me he actually worked for a period of time in the USSR making um, these clones, actually, mm. and often they were made out of wood, which is kind yeah, of interesting. Yeah, I've seen them, yeah. And also the uh, computer museum here in Berlin mm. has some of these. That's right. And I've I always them. found it was something I wanted to do with the game eventually, of having an expansion for some of these these uh, these old uh, obscure computers to the west, and the thing I find interesting is, of course, a lot of the the the, the people who made these, and also their their children, I guess, we now find a lot working in Western companies, and anyone who's ever worked with a lot of programmers from the Eastern European countries knows that a lot of them are very good. Like it's not like mm. because I, I think there's always this interesting thing that necessity sometimes is the mother of all invention you know that um when you are kind of living in a, an isolatory uh place and you need to 
find your own ways of doing things, sometimes you come up with better ideas, actually. Uh, I find it quite fascinating. Um, so some, and some of these machines in the 80s, from especially Bulgaria and Romania, um, were direct clones mm-hmm. of Western machines, like Apple's, um, Acorn's, uh, IBM's, uh, Commodore's, things like that. And some were their own sort of ideas on, on these as well. Mm-hmm. So, some were completely original. Uh, and they were usually very solid and probably still work. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Any thoughts on this, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I would be really interested to actually see one of them operating because I've only seen... You can seen see them in the museum, actually. Yeah. I've seen them in the mm. museum, but I've not seen them running, mm. you know. I've seen them as as they are, um, you know, as, as a model. But I'd be interested to see also what, I, what kind of... Um, permutations the hacker community could make with them because um they're actually you know they're pretty they've got some pretty good tech inside them so it's it's definitely worth pulling them apart and seeing what we can do yeah and, and some of the things were interesting like i remember uh we often had machines in those days in the west that connected to tvs because they were common but in these cases they connected to tvs because monitors were so expensive there was it wasn't necessarily a choice it was just there was no choice they had to be able to work with TVs. Um, yeah, and then some of them, I think, what is this model in particular? Uh, where mm. is it? The Bulgarian uh, Pravet 16 series was one of the first 16-bit architected machines. Um, and most of them were compatible. Um, the HC computer, which stood for home computer, coming out of Romania, which was un- unexpected because it was actually using English in its product name, which was unusual. Um, yeah, and I guess I would be, and then, yeah, and actually it does, uh, there's uh, another computer museum in Germany where they have mm. some of these, not the one we've been talking about, but a different one. Um, and I guess it all sort of starts to, to stop when, um, when the wall comes down and a lot of these people now are in different places. Um, yeah, and true. some of these, com- some of these, so it actually says... Apple and Sinclair replicas help build the software industries in Bulgaria and Romania, which currently employ about 150,000 in total, most of them working for Western companies. Mm. But ironically, a lot of the people that started copying these companies are now working for some of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not true. that unusual, but yeah. It's actually, you know, a, a, slight, a slight side note, but um, when Chris mentioned the, his board game, and we'll put a little link to that in our um, show notes, but um, I was doing some research into um, potential places for launches and things like that like you do when you, you're planning something and um, came was looking literally around the world at all the different computer museums and it's everything from your big kind of gold star English museum to um, pretty much someone's backyard shed. Absolutely fascinating so it's definitely something to, um, to do a little bit of googling in your own area and seeing what kind of museums there are. And the second one for me in this segment is possibly on a topic that is up there in the top 10 oldest desires in human history uh, and that is of immortality mm-hmm. now i have my own personal opinion on immortality i don't actually think i'd want to be immortal because life would get boring to be honest with you um even ignoring all the uh, the constraints of having immortal people everywhere i don't yeah. know but anyway um but it is, has been a desire that is constantly existed for mm. a long time in fact this article at the top of it has a picture from uh, Lucas Cranach, who's actually from not too far from Berlin. Oh, yeah. Fountain of Youth in 1546, a fountain of youth, the Holy Grail, all these sorts oh, of yeah. things and nothing new. And, of course, when we have a lot of uh, slightly eccentric people in control of a lot of expensive technology, mm. what is likely to happen? Well, what is likely to happen what is... What could go wrong? <laughs> well, not knows what could go wrong, <laughs> but what, what's a logical kind of conclusion? And now... Uh, we, we, I think we've covered previously about um, the uh, singularity, yeah. um, the sort of merging of human and technology. And one aspect of that is instead of it being a merging, like slowly supplementing your body mm. with electrics, mm. kind of the other way around, like uploading your Bra- brain, brain uploading, yeah, yeah. into a computer. And this article is mostly about that. I actually... Um, um, yeah. When I saw I saw this on our list, I, I, I did a little bit of picking um, just quickly then. You might have hopefully didn't hear me clicking. <laughs> um, an article I wrote um, last year for NextPack on disrupting your brain. 
um, looking at some of this stuff. Um, I might, I've got a couple of points to make on the article. Firstly, originally it talks a bit about um, cryogenics mm. and cryotherapy and, you know, probably more cryogenics. Is it, no, what's the word? Sorry, I'm having a mental blank. The word where you go and get frozen, cryopreservation, Cry thank it's you. It's cryogenics, the same Cryogenics, yeah. right, it's the same thing, okay. I always mix it up with the medical treatment where you go sit in a cold room because that's cryo something as well. Anyway, um, yeah, it's... How long were you in that room for? <laughs> I've never done it. Okay. <laughs> I just watched it on, um, on video. But um, I'm always a little sceptical of cryogenics for one very, one very good reason, or I think it's a good reason, is um, you're basically signing away your remains or your loved one's remains with a very large amount of money to a company and you're hoping that that company is never going to go bust, never going to have a fire, never going to have the founders dying um, or something go wrong because they've got all these all these bodies <laughs> sitting to, there. To be, to be fair, unless it was an open source alternative, uploading your brain to a machine is the same problem. Uh, true, true. <laughs> it's a very good point. Yeah, um, yeah there's actually... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm not a neurologist or anything like that, but I've, I have been following the idea of doing, you know, tech and brains for a while. For everything from wearable tech, things you wear that enhance your um, your cognitive functioning in um, athletics, to um, neural implants for people with very serious mental illness or neurology, neurological disorders like, um, you know, uh, dementia or perhaps seizures, things like that. And one that uh, kind of relates to the article is um, Kernel, which um, was founded, the, the guy that started that was Brian Johnson, who did Braintree. You might know Braintree. He actually kicked in $100 million last year to Kernel with the um, idea of being able to create a, a tiny chip that can be implanted in the brain to help people suffering from neurological damage mm. caused by strokes mm. and things like that. Um, the hope is it'll be able to boost intelligence, memory, and other, you know, other cognitive tasks. And this is kind of his question. He says, um, if we can record and stimulate neural activity with high resolution anywhere in the brain, can we learn the language of the neural code and make it programmable? If we can communicate directly with the neural substrates of perception, memory, and decision-making, what frontiers will emerge from our explorations of Im and imagination? So when we get on to the kind of the brain uploading stuff... We are super early with some of this tech. I mean, people... I, I read stuff now and people are going, oh, you know, what about if someone steals my brain um, my brain hard drive or <laughs> however you want to put that? Or the company you know. gets taken over. Yeah. <laughs> people start getting... Oh, you know, yeah, it goes to a... Um, you know, someone that's a... I don't know, a negative one. And I think that the one... The place we've maybe seen it best lately was... Um, Anyone who likes um, Black Mirror would remember the episode on... Um, well, actually, we're going to um, come back to this again as well. Yeah. You're talking about a different episodes here, aren't you, I think, actually? But they're similar, yeah. Well, there's kind of two it relates to. Yeah. There's the... Um, we're going to come back to one of them later. Should I not mention it then? <laughs> well, there's two episodes, and I think there's, there's the... Let's, let's say there's the episode earlier in the series. Let's talk about that one. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, yes, we can talk about that one. Yeah, that one would be um, in season two, episode four, White Christmas. Season. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's not what I thought you were going to talk about. But okay, carry on. Where <laughs> the um, and I'm just looking at my notes because I have to. Basically, the character Greta goes for an operation, which results in the creation of a digital copy of her consciousness, called Cookie, designed to control the smart house and ensure everything is perfect. Is perfect. Um, so she doesn't have to have problems like her toast not being cooked the right way, um, stuff like that. And then there's a guy called Matt in the episode who creates a virtual body for the copy, puts her in it um, with nothing but a control panel. I and do not remember this episode at all. I, I we might have to watch it after this. I thought you were going to um, talk about the one uh, in season three where she, her husband dies and she gets a robot who's programmed with his... Oh. That <laughs> That's that completely different episode. No, I, know, I, know, I don't remember this other episode. I thought you could talk about that one. No, because uh, they're both well, they're both quite similar in some respects. Well, oh. I mean, I guess I guess listeners, what we're trying, I guess what we're saying is, there's so many different ways we could mm. we could pick apart this stuff. We are like, I guess it's it's funny, you know. Like I remember being a small child, and when people thought about, there was always this joke that. Um, 
you could see people on camera and have a phone call at the same time. And people were always thought it was just this strangest thing because people would be like, what if you got out of the shower and you didn't have any clothes on? You know, it was everyone's favourite, you know, horror at the time in the um, the 80s. Um, But it just seemed so far away. And when when Skype came in, like, you you barely noticed it because it just became so normal, this kind of stuff. So... It's fu- and you know, eighties is what you know, twenty thirty. I basically base all years, my yeah. opinions on video calling from the scenes in Back to the Future two. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. I mean, we're talking about something maybe thirty, forty years ago. Um, it being sort of you know just this idea that wouldn't one day happen, and some of this stuff mm. will very gradually happen. There's a lot of people putting a lot of money into um, neurology and brain science and. Um, Every gamut from it, from the implants to the um, mm. the idea of the brain uploading. Have uh, a read of this article. So we haven't even yeah. covered some of the discussions in it on things like security, things like yeah. uh, it would probably widen the gap between rich and poor. There's yeah. kind of other issues as well. So it's, it's a little bit. It's it's not a very long article, but it covers lots of different aspects of this conversation. So go and have a look. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think I want to be immortal in any way. Well, actually, on a computer, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to even imagine what that would mean, how that would look. Like, mm. I mean, if I don't have to eat or sleep because I'm a machine, oh, I don't know. It starts to get really hard to think about. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of, it kind of. Once you start reading some of this stuff, um, there's actually a book I read recently that um, is a, based on a podcast that someone else did. I will put the little link in. Um, where they got ep- people every day, oh, sorry, every episode to come and talk about future tech and what they thought the future might be like and to give a suggestion, say, you know, what is something we need in the future? And I'm still reading the book. I've read about half of it. But it's everything from things where you go, like universal income, you go, yeah, that's good, or changes in the currency to just things that are so way out in your wacky, like, what? <laughs> but it just shows, like, in some ways, the future is really about who's got the the money and the power to make it happen, I guess. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? Anyway, that was a somewhat sobering. <laughs> oh, I'm that, sorry. That little, that little chunk. Let's uh, let's move on to our final little section of articles for yep. this podcast. So, so now we're back talking about um, Estonia, and as some of our listeners will know, we are a bit a bit of a fan kind of thing going with Estonia, having visited there and really been interested in the tech scene. Um, Chris is a e-resident of Estonia, I and. Am. Um, We've met quite a few of the interesting people involved in the startup scene there. But this first article um, in this section that Chris wanted to um, introduce to us is about the idea of est coins or crypto coins um, for e-residents of Estonia. Well, for the current country. And this is an yeah. article on Medium. This is reported fairly wildly. In the, wildly? This was reported fairly wildly. Yeah. I can't stop saying wildly. <laughs> <This is reported>. Widely. <laughs> fairly widely. In the tech press, but I am referring to the original article written by Casper Corgis, who yep. I did interview in the past, yep. who is the managing director. Actually, that wasn't his job title when I spoke to him, but anyway, he's in charge of mm-hmm. the e-residency program. Um, I mean, I would actually move to Estonia in a shot if it was a bit bigger. It's my biggest problem with it. I love some of the things they're doing. And, of course, as people always point out to me, they're, <laughs> I don't know where they got this time from, 75 minutes away from being invaded by Russia. Uh, anyway, <laughs> oh, okay. That's, uh, that's uh, anyway. That's a whole other conversation. Mm. Um, in fact, we haven't used our byline that much in this episode, Kate. So, yes, the propo- no. proposal. This is just a proposal. They're just talking about it. To issue crypto tokens would make the public of Estonia the first country with an initial coin offering ICO. All the rage at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, and I say all the rage, and I think some people are skeptical about ICOs, but they have actually been tremendously successful for a lot of people. Yeah, true. Um, anyway. So they talk about est coins managed by the public of Estonia, accessed by anyone in the world. Basically a way and he puts a quote here, which is something that I actually put discussed with him in my interview a couple of years ago now, in the very early days of the program. Estonia has just one point three million residents. What would happen if our country had ten million digital residents? Mm. And I spoke to him about this actually in the past mm. as well. Um and I think he's kind of saying that uh they shouldn't really be allowed to vote because mm. they don't live in the country, but they should have some kind of investment in the country. And this is this is a, an interesting way of providing that, actually. In some respects, it's almost like they've thought about this in the past when I talked to, talked to them about this, but didn't really have a solution or a mechanism, and this is one. So it actually enables people vested in the prosperity of the country to invest in the country. 
Um, I don't. It's a little unclear how this exactly could work. Yeah. Like typically, Agreed. a a coin or a cryptocurrency, say a um, let's take for example, um, a tech project raises cryptocurrency from. Uh, it's actually like it's very similar to Kickstarter. So you mm. you spend basically money to buy uh, cryptocurrency. To, to buy pre-access to uh, a platform yep. or a product. That's yep. basically what it is. That's my understanding. So it is, it's similar to Kickstarter in some ways. You're, yeah. you're kind of buying to be the first person to have access and have some, and then in this case, some kind of currency in the system. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're just getting a product on Kickstarter, it's a bit different. But um, yeah, and so quite exactly what that would buy you in... Estonia, I'm not 100% sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have been talking for some time about having these services and things, which are coming out slowly, but I haven't found them all to be as appealing as, as I would hope. And a lot of the third-party uh, solutions that have used the Estonian infrastructure have been eh, so far, mm. which is somewhat disappointing. That's but a I, shame. I, I think the main issue is that Estonia is, be, is seen by lots of larger countries as just not not big enough to be taken seriously. And a lot of the governments, especially, that have been looking at the program tend to be the smaller emerging ones, much like Estonia. I mean, I'm always curious with something, these kind of offerings and how um, it doesn't occur that you get some of those large monopoly companies coming in and kind of taking over. It depends. So, so, okay, when you look at um, Bitcoin blockchain, there is one method of determining who gets the say. Okay. Which is a uh, proof of work. And then, but then the other blockchains allow you to define the proof of, and it, whether it be a proof of work or a proof of stake. And uh, the, a lot of the platforms that have emerged allow you to determine what that is. Okay. It may be, if it was, say, a cryptocurrency for neighborhood planning, mm-hmm. it may be that you uh, get more more kind of sway in saying how things should go by turning up to meetings. Right. Or it may be in pure buying power, or it may be in something else. Like, it can be defined. Right. So I'm guessing that's the thing. It's a very interesting sort of concept article here, but it's a little unclear about how, what, what it would mean. Um, and and I, I guess that is uh, half the point. It, they just said it's a proposal. It's not... I mm. think the whole point mm. was to get ideas, and they've had a lot of comments and feedback on this. Yeah, that's um, true. They're comparing it to the Norwegian State Pension Fund, which is actually based on the oil revenue from that's right. in Norway, because yeah. Norway gets a lot of money from oil, and I've they reinvest that back into the pension fund. Yeah, right. So everyone sorts of benefits yeah. from, from that. So there's that's possibly one idea. It could be that people buy into the country, and then the physical residents of the country benefit from the digital residents. That right. could be one way. Yeah, I don't know. Makes sense. There's a whole bunch of thoughts here. And if you have your own thought about how this could work, I would encourage you to go to the article. And mm. yeah, surprising amount of pluses, but uh, like thumbs up or claps as now Medium is doing, which actually <laughs> on a side side tangent, I think is actually quite a nice idea. But anyway, yeah, like uh, but only 52 comments. So if you have any yeah. comments, jump yeah. in and actually uh, add your thoughts about what that could mean. Any other thoughts, Kate? Or do you want to move on to our last article? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not something I've really heavily engaged with but i would like to learn more so i'd encourage other people to check it out too and um, then we can chat about it together that sounds like you didn't read the article kate no <laughs> <laughs> all right well in that case how about we go to a final article which yeah. is one i haven't read and you have how about that um yeah this one is actually looking at how science fiction predicts relationships it's um from the guardian and it's basically pulling apart a bunch of sci-fi films and TV shows that look at how Actually, I did read this life and yeah. love is in the future. So we have everything here, and I've not seen all these TV shows or films, I might add. We have everything from her to The Lobster to Marjorie Prime Composite. There's, of course, our Black Mirror that we mentioned earlier. Um, and that episode, but it also refers to one of the latter episodes, the one that won a lot of awards. We don't want to give away any spoilers, but Future of Romance was a fascinating episode, wasn't it? 
Which one are you talking the about? The Black Mirror episode. The, well, actually, both of them. The one with the robot. But the, the one towards the end as well. I think people... Are you talking about San Junipero? Yes, yes. That's also in this article. So. Yeah. yeah. But um, it, it kind of look, offers some really interesting ideas about relationships, like how technology could be used to help people deal with grief, for example. Mm. Like, it's got a couple of different examples from um, the idea of an AI that can um, help people go back into their earlier lives and have fun and enjoy themselves when they're, mm. you know, effectively comatized. Um, sorry. And conversely, you've got the idea along these themes as well where someone's partner dies and they're able to order a, I guess, a robot <laughs> of the... Um, Oh, that looks like the partner, but he's not quite the partner, yeah. that um, is able to mimic their um, their language and so on by uploading all their social media and things like that. Um, very interesting. I find it quite interesting because it's mostly positive. The lobster, mm. it is, well, it's focusing on new uh, science fiction. I haven't seen the lobster. I'd like to read, it's actually been on my list for a while. It's hard. To, I haven't quite managed to figure out where to watch it yet. Um, yeah. It, it, most of them are fairly positive, and it, it, we're, not ex- we're excluding here old science fiction. Yeah, true. Things like 1984 or Brave New World, who also have their own predictions on love and take very different approaches. Mm. I guess in uh, 1984, it's actually, I, I don't think there is much love. And in Brave New World, it's just for fun. There is, there's no reason to procreate, it's just pure lust, really. Yeah. Um, they're both very of their time books. But yeah, I, mean, I I find it interesting. They're not new ideas per se. It also mentions Ex Machina, which we watched, which was a bit bit of a weird film. Mm. But um, it had some interesting ideas in it. Worth a watch. Yeah, I don't know. I, Do you know what? And I think some of the positives here, I think, are... Uh, oh, Metropolis. Actually, it does talk about one old one, Metropolis. Yeah. yeah. There was weird an science. article weird I read science. recently. It was one of those long read type scenarios, which, again, I'll, I'll link to because I can't remember where it was and who, who wrote it. Apologies in advance. Um, about someone who created a chatbot of their father um, just before he died of cancer. Did they like their father? Would yes. Would be the way yes, he did. <laughs> Basically, what he did was he, um, in short, he got a very extensive suite of stories that his father would, had told him verbally, okay. um, recorded them, and um, obviously, you know, broke them down, broke down the words where appropriate, so that. Someone could ask questions to that would instigate the um, the bot telling the stories back to you, or coming up with an anecdote, or making a you know a comment that mm. this guy would normally make. And it was very laborious. It was a really laborious task. Um, he involved his whole family. He even played it back to his um, his mother and his father at one point, which was pretty um, uh, creepy, <laughs> shall we say? It was quite. I mean, it's kind of. I don't know. It, it it gives you this whole idea of this issue of digital legacies as well. Like, how do we want to be remembered? Do we want to be remembered? That um, sounds like something we talked about earlier. <laughs> yeah. Does it let you just well and here die? Is, here like, here, here you know? is an interesting question: If who gets consent in this? Like tying in those two articles. Yeah. If you died, and I wanted to upload your personality to the cloud, to the yeah. love cloud. Yeah. Who gets consent in that? You are now immortal. Yeah. Did you want to be? No, <laughs> probably not. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, that's the issues with all this stuff. Um, who opts in? Who opts out? Who decides? How mu- Who has access to it? Mm. There's so much privilege in so much of these conversations. You know what, you know what I you think know? we should do, Kate? A bit of a tangent here. You know what I think we should do? Yeah. Reading down this article and looking yeah. at some of these films, some we've seen, yeah. some we have seen and not for a long time, yeah. some I'd like to see. You know yeah. what I think we should do? Movie we festival. Sh- no, 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 no. Better than that, we should. Well, we sort of. We should do a um, a, a side episode where we do some of the the classic kind of uh, live narration of some of these films. Oh yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah, <laughs> they're always um, fun to do. I'll just mention quickly because I'll, otherwise I'll forget. Um, there is, of course, series four of Black Mirror coming out. Um, you can now watch the um, the I guess the little um, preview for that. On YouTube, so I encourage you to check that out okay. as well. All right, let's close up this episode, Kate. Let's close up this episode with talking about what we've been up to and what we're up to. Um, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, well, let's see. I've been doing lots of interviews. I'm just kind of catching up with with writing them all down at the moment. Um, the moment I'm working on one with a lovely gentleman called P- Paul Chin from um, Virginia, who 
was working in food trucks and as a you know a chef and those sort of roles. And he went to a an event with his food truck. It was a node bots day. He was sort of like, oh, this is interesting. Returned the next year with his truck to sell the food. Decided to have a go. Um, fast forward, of you know, a couple of years later, he now teaches node bots to people um, and runs workshops and all sorts of stuff. And he's created a little node bot yeah. that. Um, Basically, is a <laughs> is a prayer to Nicolas Cage. So it's a little Nicolas Cage shrine where it allows you to um, to pray to Nicolas Cage each day and records each prayer that you've done. Um, it's it's been, it, you know it's actually really it was a really enjoyable interview because, as well as being kind of funny with the Nicolas Cage thing. But I'm always really interested to learn how how other people get into tech. As someone myself who didn't go to university and study computer science or something like that. Um, there's often this perception that it's all this very specialist knowledge and it's, you know, you have to be very um, mathematically minded to be able to access any of these kind of opportunities. And he shows that, you know, sometimes going in and learning hands-on where you have the, the materials in front of you, you have someone showing you, you have a fairly accessible platform using, you know, using Node.js and, and JavaScript and stuff like that. Um, to be able to really learn these things and get competent and confident as well. So it's um, it's a really nice interview. Mm. I look forward to sharing it with you. And you also have an article here, I think you're selling yourself slightly short, I've just seen, on the smart lock fiasco. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a bit of a doozy, this one. Um, <laughs> basically, um, people would know a smart, a smart lock. The idea is a lock on your door that you operate through, say, your mobile phone or... Um, if you're a bit more advanced, it might be a wearable or an implant if you're very advanced. And um, there's a company called Lock, Lockwood, Lock something. I haven't got it open. Um, can you click on it and tell me what the company's called? We'll just check that so we don't get sued by a company with a similar name because there's a few. It is called... Lock State. Lock State. So apologies, Lockwood is not you. With um, their remote lock 6i. Yes, this particular brand, it's marketed through um, Airbnb to people with remote properties Makes that they sense. rent Makes out. Sense. The idea being, you know, you just you can lock it in with your phone, blah, blah, blah. And um, basically they did a, um, an upgrade and the whole system crashed. So you can no longer lock your door if you have one of these. Now, this is all fine and dandy if you have a physical key, of course, because none of... None of us are suggesting that a, a world where no one has a key. It's about having options, I guess. But um, given the you know the the, the market, you, these people may very well not have a key. <laughs> so you could rock up. You've got this the nightmare scenario. You're rocking up to an Airbnb and you can't get in or out. Um, or conversely, you've got people with properties that they can't yeah. rent out. Um, that could be a security risk. And the company was very um, a little bit slow acting on this, shall we say, and. Their, their options are obviously a replacement bit that you have to put in yourself or um, or a refund. But the, the biggest problem here is it takes a, 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 nearly three weeks to get um, get these things happening. So if you're you know if you're relying on having a, a front door lock, not unreasonable. Um, it's fairly problematic. Can I actually when I when I published this article, I got a very angry email from the company, say, from the PR person, saying, well, you know. Don't you want us to hear to hear our side of the story? And I said, well, hang on. Firstly, um, the story most of it I got from your press release that you did after it. Secondly, um, you know, you're actually talking to the wrong person because I'm someone who's a big fan of of these kinds of products and have been pushing them for some time. And thirdly, look, I welcome you to tell me your side of the story. Let me know. Let's let's work on something. Never heard back. Funny, I think, isn't I think it? this is interesting. The Internet of Things. And, and wider, but especially the Internet of Things, I think it shows that, and it's not the first time we've had the infamous story with the pet feeders as no, well. No, that's right. Is that there needs to be a fallback if the Correct. connection goes down. Correct, exactly. Um, somehow. It needs to be able to work offline as well. And this has always been my issue with using, like, why don't you use Google Docs? And that's because I don't always have an internet connection. Yeah. This is why yeah. I actually like using apps sometimes, because yeah. I have um, the ability to work offline crazy yeah. i know but sometimes we're not always online <laughs> and it, it's funny you know i was thinking about it because um i interviewed a company um i mentioned them in this article called one aim here in germany in berlin and they have a kind of a related product but their difference is they don't use um they don't use a uh, wi-fi they use the um mm. 
a cellular network as a means to log in because they just say it's it's unreliable. But it's it's interesting because sometimes here in Berlin the cellular network isn't all that reliable either. So I kind well, of we are using could, uh, we are both on a cheap network to be you fair. Could, <laughs> you could you, you maybe get a bit stuck with um, yeah. with that also. But all right. Um, Let's round up this. I'll quickly whip through some of the things I've written about. I have written about India Sorry. Stack. Uh, fascinating. We talked about Estonia earlier and their digital revolution, but they're only 1.2 million people. How about digitizing and disrupting a country of 2 billion people? Wow. Now, India Stack has tried to do this. The one thing we found, and I read some other articles explaining the same thing, is that it, didn't, it presents with this whole platform. It doesn't really tell you how to use it. But hmm. anyway, have a look at the uh, roundup there. I, and these would have popped up on the podcast. I talked to Pepperdata and um, Datical, uh, kind of both companies trying to bring DevOps practices to different fields. My article on a, a, a course roundup of computer science courses where I interviewed lots of ex-students of various online and offline computer science course providers and got their opinions is now published. And finally, uh, another one of my kind of out there think PC articles that, um, well, not think PC, but sort of trying uh, to define a new a new way of doing things that I've been working on for a little while is published, which is a bit technical, but tools and practices for documenting microservices, um, something that came up in some meetups here a few times, and I thought it was time I got um, pixel to screen. <laughs> I can't say pen to paper, can I? Uh, and that's out too. So I've got quite a few there. Now, in regard to what we're both up to over the next uh, sort of couple of weeks, we will both be at IFA uh, the latter half of this week at some point. I'm not entirely sure when we're going to turn up, but we'll both be at IFA. And then probably, and in fact, I think the next episode will probably mostly be about this, we'll be at Startup Night yeah, the week that's after. True. In fact, I think we'll probably make the majority of the next kind of episode with the two of us about that, actually. Sure. Um, we could probably do some live interviews while we're there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Until the next time, uh, I have been Chris on at Chris Chinch. And I've been Kate on Kate with a C underscore L-A-W Lawrence. With a W. And there's a um, there's an ash at the start of that. <laughs> Kate, <laughs> I think you can work it out, right? And um, if, if you enjoy the podcast... Please go to gregorismammal.com slash podcast to find previous episodes and show notes. And please go to gregorismammal.com slash support to buy any lovely merchandise. We have stickers available. We will tell you in the next episode how to get your hands on those because we're going to plan a little something around them. But I haven't quite got around to getting that ready yet. So you will have some stickers from us pretty soon. But yeah, and vote us on any podcasting platforms that you use. And we will speak to you all next time. See you for now. Bye-bye.